electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. You know, got to wait for the music. Uh, Thanks, Scott. And hi, everybody. On this Monday, here's what's ahead. Apple is kicking off its developers conference right now. The stock is on a roll, having its best quarter since 2012. But it's now under scrutiny for its app practices. We're going to bring you all the headlines from this event. Plus, billionaire investor Mike Novogratz says the shuffle at the SEC is going to be positive for one area of the market. He'll tell us what it is. And a double upgrade for Gap today. Choppy waters for cruise balance sheets and discount stores double down. It's all ahead in, yes, rapid fire, which we'll see Dom Chu for. But first, we start with the markets, and he has those numbers for us. Can you tell just how excited I am for what's going to happen with rapid fire today? Love it. It's good to be back with that rapid fire team. But let's talk about the markets right now because we are green across the board. Not by much, but still, the bulls will take it as a win today. Generally speaking, we're talking about half percent gains. You can see for the Dow Industrials, the S&P 500, and then the Nasdaq Composite as well, up almost one full percent here. We're still above that 3,100 mark, so that's something we'll keep an eye on for the S&P 500. We talk about stocks that are hitting record highs, ETFs, trends, that sort of thing. You heard Steve Weiss's final trade in the halftime report, XBI, the Spider S&P Biotech ETF, up 6% today. We're going to put a gold star up here because what does it mean? It means it's at a record high. A lot of focus on this particular industry group, given what we've seen with COVID-19 and everything else. And one other place to watch, payments technology, fintech, specifically Square shares, because they also get a gold star up here because they've hit a record high today, up 7%, driven in part by an analyst upgrade over at Barclays. By the way, this stock has now climbed since the COVID-19 lows, a whopping 220% since those March levels. Kelly, biotechnology, payments technology, hot spots. We'll see if that momentum continues. I'll see you in rapid fire. Back over to you. Sounds good, Dom. Thanks very much. And big tech is the other big hot spot. Apple's first fully virtual worldwide developers conference is underway as I speak. Josh Lipton will be monitoring all the headlines for us. And Josh, Apple shares are up about 2%. What can we expect today? So, Kelly, this is first and foremost a software show, remember, right? So we'll expect to see upgrades across Apple's multiple operating systems. You begin with iOS 14, so that's the company's mobile operating system. Analysts think you're going to see some new features there, including the ability, they think, to recall iMessages, an updated fitness app, a Safari language translator. Reports also suggest upgraded tools to build AR apps, augmented reality. We know that's a, an area of tech Tim Cook is very interested in. For Watch OS 7, so the new operating system for that wearable, expectation is for new watch faces, parental controls, and a new sleep app. Apple, remember, doesn't break out how many watches it sells exactly, but the team at Loop Ventures thinks they've sold 30 million just in the past 12 months. For the Mac, there's a lot of talk that Apple could announce its transitioning today from Intel processors to its own ARM-based designs. Analysts say that should mean improved performance while reducing costs. Conference takes place as the App Store is under increasing scrutiny. We know European regulators have opened an investigation. But to your point, Kelly, 
investors don't seem worried. This stock is on a roll on track for its best quarter since 2012. Back to you. Yeah, and if they do announce that, we'll watch shares of Intel as well. Uh, Josh, appreciate it, and we'll see you again soon with some more of these headlines. Josh Lipton on this Apple event. And the stock is once again nearing record highs. It exerts a ton of force on the markets. Remember, just on Friday, the major averages were thrown into disarray when Apple announced it would close some stores in Florida, North and South Carolina, and Arizona because of a spike in COVID cases. Is it a sign that the markets are too top-heavy? Let's ask John Augustine. He's Chief Investment Officer of Huntington Private Bank, and David Rolf is Chief Investment Officer at Wedgwood Partners. Welcome to you both. David, you own Apple, correct? Yes, that's right. We've owned it uh, continuously for our clients since 2005. Wow. Uh, by the way, what, what gives you the certainty to keep hanging on when you could probably sell this thing at a pretty good profit pretty much any time? Well, since we've owned it, it's interesting, Kelly. Apple has really um, evolved into a very different company when we first owned it. And then we went through the whole iPhone, and now we have uh, the services business. And uh, they continue to grow that ecosystem. That's, that's our big bullish tailwind is those incremental uh, improvements year after year in that sticky ecosystem. Yeah, they've got me with iMessage, that's for sure. John, I want to bring you in <laughs> talk a little bit about not just Apple, which is up 55% from the March 23 lows, Amazon's up 46%, Microsoft up 44%, Alphabet up 35%, you know, Facebook as well. Um, are these stocks too top-heavy in the market? Well, they're certainly the leaders. What we're doing in this environment, knowing how much they've stretched Kelly, as we do have our equity team saying, look, if you have more than 5% of it, hold it, potentially trim it. We're not adding over 5% in any of our strategies right now in recognition of the potential that the generals are out too far ahead of the Army at this point. But they're good holdings. Yeah. So, again, the question becomes, what could derail their performance? I mean, you have people who say, John, that they can't really even figure out what the market's doing day after day because you just have shares of Amazon just rising almost like clockwork. Do you have to worry about that trend stopping? I mean, we've we've watched this play out for so many years that it just becomes second nature. Sure, sure you do. You, you have to watch for that stopping. So you put in, as mentioned, a limit on how much those are. But then we're going to go into earnings season, Kelly. That's going to be the first barometer. Then we're going to go into election season. That's probably going to be the second barometer for these FANG stocks. Those will be the two things our equity team is watching around those. Okay, both of those you see presenting some risk. And obviously, we've seen more chatter, David, lately about Apple's app store practices. The interesting thing is that anytime we're talking about it, the shares typically shrug it all off as if nothing's going to fundamentally disrupt the business model. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with that. What, what's, you know, what's interesting is that when you look at some of these specific issues, uh, uh, people get upset about, and, and, you know, some of the app store practices. But when you really start, and even, you know, last week about uh, shutting down some of the stores, but when you start to take a look at how important they are in the overall pie, the apple pie, uh, they're not that large. And so it takes, it's going to take a lot to interrupt the, uh, the growth momentum at, at Apple, given the diversity of all of their revenue streams. Yeah, and finally, John, a quick question about the markets overall. The president just made some news in the past hour in a Scripps interview where he reportedly backed a second stimulus check for Americans in the next coronavirus aid package. Now, that package could still be a little ways off, but what do you think about market valuations here relative to the economy, and do we need uh, not only a second package but direct checks? 
Well, we would say, first off, we need that local and state government fiscal stimulus. That's the first one. The second one, we need to know how employees do getting back to work by July 31st, that $600 a week unemployment number or time period, I should say. So what we would say is we've liked the titanic, timely, targeted nature of the fiscal stimulus. Probably now it's time to wait and see how we do this summer, rehiring, reopening, see what resurgence is in the cases. That's what we're looking at at our shop. All right. So a little bit cautious in that environment. And David, I think yeah. it sums it up here in my notes when you say in Fed, we trust. <laughs> so we'll leave it at, Absolutely. There, at that. David Rolf and John Augustine, thank you both. Appreciate it today. Thanks, Kelly. And let's turn now to Washington, where we have a lot to get to, from Jeffrey Berman's botched firing to Kevin Hassett's planned departure and TikTok derailing the president's Tulsa rally. Eamon Javers is here with all of the latest. Eamon, let's start with these personnel moves. Yeah, a tumultuous series of events, Kelly, on Friday night going into the late in the afternoon on Saturday as the U.S. Attorney General, Mr. Barr, decided that Jeffrey Berman should no longer be the person in charge of the Southern District of New York. That's the, the Wall Street prosecutor. It's one of the most high-profile jobs at the Department of Justice. Uh, Barr put out a press release saying that Jeffrey Berman was stepping down, but Berman said that was the first he'd heard of it, and he wasn't going to step down. That produced a standoff after which Berman showed up for work on Saturday. Uh, ultimately, the president had to step in and fire Berman. That had the effect of blocking the New Jersey prosecutor that Barr wanted to put into position and elevating Berman's uh, number two, Audrey Strauss, uh, to run the shop in the meantime until they can find a Senate-confirmed person to uh, fill the job on a full-time basis. All of that leaves open the question of what happens to Jay Clayton at the SEC. Barr wanted Clayton to take over that position. Now, not clear what's going to happen with that or whether he could get confirmed uh, this summer or any time before the election. We are going to hear from Jay Clayton at the SEC at a previously scheduled event uh, coming up at 2 p.m. on a different topic. So we'll see what he says, if anything, about all of this. And then, as you mentioned, uh, speaking of uh, transitions of power, Kevin Hassett is going to be leaving the White House. He can Firms to me. He was there for three months this time as an economic advisor brought in to help handle the economic crisis. He says uh, he only planned on doing three months. He started March 20th, and so he's wrapping up his tenure at the White House now, Kelly. Yeah, started March 20th, the market bottom on March 23rd. So that uh, that has certainly been the crisis period. So many questions, Eamon. I, I suppose Jay Clayton can just stay as chair of the SEC for the time being, but I also want to get to the role that TikTok played, if we can even tell for sure at this point in terms of all those tickets that went unused at the president's rally. Yeah, hard to say what the ultimate impact of this was, but you are seeing a lot of people, uh, TikTok users, saying that they had a social media campaign to snap up the tickets to the president's Tulsa, Oklahoma rally over the weekend to register. And we saw the, the Trump campaign uh, bragging in the days leading up to that, uh, uh, that rally just how many people had signed up and registered, how much data they were harvesting from all those people. It could be that this was sort of a massive senior prank by the high school students of America uh, in order to make the Trump campaign campaign think it had oversold that arena. Ultimately, uh, just over 6,000 people, we're told, attended that event. There were a lot of empty seats there. The president is said to be very frustrated by the lack of attendance at that event. But we can't say for sure, Kelly, that the TikTok... Uh, 
activity, whatever it was, was directly responsible for that lack of attendance. It could just be that people in Oklahoma were scared off by the virus and the resurgence of cases in Tulsa, decided, you know what, I'm going to sit this one out. Yeah, and the bigger concern, obviously, for the president's reelection campaign is whether there's just a lack of enthusiasm that could overcome those concerns about the crowd or what have you. So to that point, we have the real clear polling average right now with Biden up nine and a half points. Uh, the Economist forecast model has Biden at 87 percent and the predicted odds have him at 58 percent. Yeah, and I think what you have to do is you, you can't really look at the national polls here. You've got to look at the Electoral College tallies state by state and look at some of those battleground states where in our own CNBC poll, uh, we have seen now Joe Biden taking over a lead, uh, you know, some some cases a very small lead, but in all of the battleground states that we are watching. So that would imply uh, Joe Biden is in a very good is in very good shape in the Electoral College. But it's June, right? There's a long way to go with this. This president has thrived politically off of the intensity of his base and his following. If that intensity starts to dwindle, uh, that could be really challenging for his campaign because this is not a president who's uh, had a big tent approach to this. Right. This is a president who's focused on maintaining his base and intensifying their emotions and then driving them out to vote. If he starts to see that go south on him, that could be a problem, but it's still early. Yeah. Eamon, we appreciate the recap and the news on all of that. Thank you. Eamon Javers in Washington today. Coming up, we'll hear exclusively from Airbnb CEO Brian Chesky about the challenges of operating during this pandemic and if they're sticking with their plans for an IPO this year. Plus, there's one asset class that could be a beneficiary if there's a change in helm at the SEC. We'll explain that. And a double upgrade for the struggling retailer, The Gap, to what is now the only overweight rating on the street. We've got those details coming up. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Airbnb, like many other companies, won't look and operate quite the same way post-pandemic. CEO Brian Chesky says that's made the company stronger. Deirdre Bosa spoke with him a short while ago, and she joins me now with those headlines. Deirdre? Hey, Kelly. Well, certainly Airbnb is not the same company that it was just a few months ago. And furthermore, Chesky says that travel will never look the same again. We have more hosts today and more homes today than before COVID started. So the important thing here is that the market is resilient. The community is resilient. Um, and I think that one trend that is going to happen is the following. Travel as we knew it is over. It doesn't mean travel's over, just the travel we knew is over, and it's never coming back. Now, to prepare for this new world, Airbnb has made some difficult cuts. A quarter of its staff and a billion dollars in marketing costs, the company is also getting back to its roots, home sharing. Over the last few years, Airbnb has made some major moves into the hotel space, but now they're scaling back those plans. And that could raise some questions for its eventual IPO. By getting back to basics, that could mean less revenue streams and opportunities for expansion. So how will investors value this new company? 
Here's what Chesky said about the timing of that IPO. At this point, it, 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 we're not ruling out going public this year, but we're not committing. Um, we want the world to be ready for Airbnb, and that means that travel needs to see a little bit more of a sustained recovery. The market needs to recover a bit, and we just need to kind of weigh our options. So we don't have any news to say, but we're not ruling anything out. Now, Kelly, just a few weeks ago, it would have been almost unfathomable to think that Airbnb could actually go public this year. But the fact that it's on the table now speaks to the tentative, very tentative green shoots that Airbnb has at least begun to see. Yeah. And then I'm also thinking longer. You know, he, he had been kind of trying to maintain this. Yes, we're, we're IPOing, we're IPOing. And now he sounds a little bit more um, like he's hedging that in terms of the timing this year. It was also interesting how he said travel as we knew it is over and never coming back. That's quite a statement. What do you think he means by that? I think that he means, and he's backing this up with what Airbnb is doing, is that people aren't going to easily go back to the way that they were, and perhaps that's getting on airplanes and booking hotel rooms anytime in the near future. He called in the near future, excuse me. He said that what they have seen is a lot of domestic travel, and it is quite astounding that at least domestic bookings, they have rebounded over the last few weeks on an annualized basis. So they're focusing on that sort of home experience. They don't think that people are going to go back to hotels. Um, we'll see. I think there's important questions. If we do see a vaccine, do people go back to hotels? Do they maybe lose a step by scaling that side of their business down? These are all, you know, key right. questions and why he says that he's hedging his IPO a little bit. Absolutely. No, it's super interesting. Deirdre, great interview. And thanks very much for bringing that to us. Deirdre Bosa speaking with Brian Chesky today. Coming up, the closing of the malls isn't just having an impact on retailers. It's dealing a big blow to towns across the country. We'll tell you what the consequences could be. Plus, September, that's how long cruise lines are going to have to wait until they set sail again. How much longer can they survive with zero revenue? And remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The exchange is back in a couple. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get a check on the markets today. A small rebound playing out this afternoon with the Dow up 114, about half a percent. Same for the S&P. It's up 16. And by the way, the Dow's been briefly flirting with the 26,000 level all afternoon. We're 14 points below that right now. The Nasdaq, which did touch its prior record highs today, is above 10,000. Again, as you can see, with an 85-point gain, it's the strongest performer on the session. And here are the sectors. It's kind of a mixed bag. You do have technology in the leadership. Not too surprising, given what I just described. It's up 1.5%. Flips 
side, real estate down two-thirds of 1%. Healthcare also a little bit weaker today. Let's talk about some individual stocks which are on the move right now. And we'll start with shares of Virgin Galactic. They are taking off on a deal with NASA to develop a recruitment and training program for private astronauts who wish to visit the International Space Station. We sort of saw a similar thing with Tesla or SpaceX, remember. Virgin Galactic, SPCE ticker, up 14% today. And shares of Peloton are also higher. They're on pace for their third straight month of double-digit gains. Peloton's up more than 5% today on a steeple price target raised to $62. That's the street high. Stock's just under $54 today. They're bullish over at Stiefel on Peloton's momentum and long-term opportunity. And finally, shares of American Airlines are lower on news that it plans to raise $3.5 billion in new financing. Uh, this is a 6% sell-off. It's going to be done through a combination of selling stock, doing senior secured notes, and by entering a new half-a-billion-dollar credit facility. So near-term liquidity, but still some longer-term concerns for Americans' balance sheet. Now let's get to Rahel Solomon for our CNBC News update. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Kelly. I am Rahel Solomon, and here is your CNBC News update at this hour. Global confirmed cases of COVID-19 topping 9 million just a short time ago. President Donald Trump says that he supports a second round of direct payments for Americans as part of the next stimulus package. This is according to an interview conducted by Scripps National News. The president says that details of the next virus relief bill will come in the next few weeks. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi responding to the president's admission that he did not seek punishment against China for its mass internment of its Uyghur population last year out of fear of jeopardizing trade talks. In a statement, Pelosi accuses the administration of selling out Uyghur human rights and called the president's conduct, quote, appalling. And the Golden Globes will hold its 78th award show on February 28th next year. That is the same date abandoned by the Academy Awards last week due to the pandemic. That is the CNBC News update at this hour. Kelly, I will send it back to you. So accordingly, and apparently, Kelly, the show will go on. We'll just have to wait until next year for it. I don't really, I mean, they bumped it back a few weeks. I don't know what a difference that's going to make. I, I haven't watched those shows in a long time. But. I, nor I. Uh, <laughs> Rahel, but thank you very much. Sure. Rahel Solomon with the latest there. Turning now to retail, the pandemic has left many of America's malls reeling, and that's having a big impact, not just on the companies that operate them, but the towns that depend on them. Get this. Malls and shopping centers across the country provide $400 billion in local tax revenue each year. For more, let's bring in CNBC.com's Lauren Thomas, who just wrote a piece looking at the ripple effects of these closures. And Lauren, I guess the best we can hope for is a swift reopening. But even then, I, I wonder how much of that tax revenue is predicated on malls going back to what they once were. And, and after what we just heard from Airbnb, I wonder how long that's going to be. Sure, Kelly. Well, thanks so much for having me. And, and like you said, that $400 billion figure each year, I mean, this is a substantial amount of money um, that malls and, and shopping centers are pouring into these local tax coffers. Um, and I think oftentimes we forget as we talk about the, the demise of the shopping mall, um, just what role the mall can play in a community. Um, and when I speak to uh, Tom McGee, the CEO of the retail real estate trade group, ICSC, he tells me he's very concerned about how this is going to ultimately pan out. I mean, th this money, the, um, either sales taxes or property taxes are funding school budgets, um, police infrastructure. Um, so there's certainly many more consequences beyond just a uh, community losing a, a place to shop or grab a bite to eat in the food court um, if a mall is, is to permanently shut. Lauren, I also, and I remember we, we spoke about this as well, um, a couple weeks ago, the Washington Post had also kind of rung an alarm bell. And the point then was that it, it's not even so much that the malls, you know, might not be able to pay any of this money. It's that they might choose not to. I mean, they might view this kind of 
bill as somewhat fungible given this environment with everything else going on and maybe hope that Washington comes with some state and local bailout money and maybe they don't have to pony up. Sure. I, I think many developers are still in certain ways waiting on the government to, to offer them something. Um, you see some small businesses obviously getting loans, but in many instances, retailers aren't paying rent. And when a retailer doesn't pay rent, that ultimately means the landlord can't pay its own bills. Um, with some of these real estate developers saying they're collecting anywhere from 25 to 30 percent of, of rents uh, for the month, you know, which is not near what they need to 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 keep their own business uh, afloat. Uh, one mall owner, CBL, um, it's a publicly traded mall owner, and it's already missed two interest payments during this pandemic, and now is in a grace period. It could potentially default on those loans and, and potentially declare bankruptcy, and if so, it, it would be the first uh, mall owner to do so. So yes, like you said, there, there are many consequences. Um, you know, when the, when the retailer's stores are shut, it kind of trickles down um, all the way through this food chain. Yeah, and as you report here, Simon Property Group also told investors they know local communities depend on their sales tax and real estate taxes. I hope they appreciate what we're doing. Doing. Again, maybe implying uh, if push comes to shove, they might have to let that go. Lauren, thanks very much. Everyone can go read the whole piece on CNBC.com. Uh, the demise of America's malls can be a blow to the towns that depend on them. Coming up, new developments from Gilead on its drug remdesivir that could help treat the virus earlier and quicker. We'll get those details. Plus, the gap getting a double upgrade. TJ Maxx sticking with its core mission and not so smooth sailing. It's all ahead on Rapid Fire. Welcome back, and let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire, and here to break down the headlines are Courtney Reagan, Dom Chu, and Seema Modi. Welcome, everybody. We're also going to bring in Meg Terrell here uh, for the first story. We have a breakthrough on treating coronavirus. Gilead just announced it'll begin human trials in August for an inhaled version of the COVID drug remdesivir. The company's been looking into an easier and earlier way to administer this drug. Ms. Terrell uh, joins us because, Meg, this seems like potentially huge news if it can help people get remdesivir outside of the hospital, right? Yeah, it could be really helpful, Kelly. So right now, this drug is given as a daily infusion by IV in the hospital setting. So by the time patients get to that point, they're already pretty sick. It's thought that this drug, because of the way it works, could work better earlier in the course of the disease. So this inhaled version that Gilead has now developed could be given by a nebulizer uh, and then would be inhaled and could potentially be administered outside the hospital. So if people could get it before they become extremely sick, and are hospitalized, it could stop the disease in its tracks earlier. And the hope is that it will work even better. But we're going to have to wait to see the results of those trials that, as you said, will begin in August. True. It's not like it's going to start tomorrow. But, Dom, why do you think Gilead shares are, are down today, given all this? So there's a real concern and there's, there's, a, there's a real investor kind of at least storyline right now about just how important a drug like remdesivir can be to a very large company like Gilead or to any large company that's trying to develop drugs along this front. Generally speaking, if you can see the needle moved at a company the size of Gilead, it may not be something like this. And, and there's also, by the way, this notion that if you could come up with a drug, a vaccine, a treatment, anything related to the coronavirus, how much would you or can you really charge for it? Yes. There's a lot of stuff out there saying, you know, maybe they should do this at break even just so that you can get this global pandemic taken care of. It's more of a, a service to the human race rather than being a profit motivator. And that's the reason why, by the way, when you show the year to date chart, of Gilead, 
the stock has been all over the place, but it generally hasn't done very much in response to the positivity around remdesivir. And yeah. that's probably the reason why. So real quickly, Meg, are you hearing anything about pricing yet from the company? I mean, is there any scuttlebutt around this? Yeah, so the company is donating its existing supply through this month, but we're expecting a pricing decision really at any time. If you read that entire letter from the Gilead CEO, Dan O'Day, he really goes through the, com the company's commitment to uh, infectious disease drugs, to antivirals, sort of priming the audience for an announcement of where they will price this drug. So we're hearing you know, anywhere between $1,000, $5,000 a course, It'll be very interesting to see where they end up depricing this. Yeah. Meg, thanks so much. We appreciate it. We'll let you go, Meg Terrell. Let's turn to the cruise lines now. It's been super rough sailing for them since the pandemic began, obviously. Now Carnival just announced it's extending the cancellation of trips from the U.S. through September 30th. This was after most of the carriers just last week agreed to suspend trips through at least September 15th. All the shares of the major ones are down today. You can see about 6% declines. Carnival is still down 67% this year. Seema, why, I mean, why make a big announcement for a two-week extension? Well, I think right here what we're seeing is with every sector, Kelly, sort of uh, putting together their path forward. The cruise lines have been halted since mid-March, and now you have Carnival, Carnival with this new uh, decision to delay sailings till September 30th. Maybe it buys them just more two weeks of time. The issue really here is the CDC, you know, from the conversations I've had with individuals in the cruise lines who work at these cruise operators, they're saying that they're trying to propose different changes they can make on board, you know, running these ships at 50 to 60 percent capacity. But ultimately, they can't make these changes without getting some type of guidance from the CDC. So we're sort of this push and pull between health officials and the cruise operators that are sort of seeing their ships at the ports. They're waiting to get some level, some type of green light. And in the meantime, uh, sailings continue to get extended. If you're hoping to get on a cruise this summer, that's canceled. And now... Not till fall, at the least. I want to know when Courtney would get on a cruise. <laughs> you know, Kelly, I think you're either you're either a cruise person or you're not. And I can <laughs> say I've been on one, but yeah. it's been a long time. <laughs> and so I can't even remember the different health and safety precautions that were taken. I kind of want to know the liability. What if I went on a cruise and I got sick? Uh, what, what are my options? What could I do um, if something happened? What is the cruise ship responsible for? And I don't think I'm brave enough to be the first one either. And I wonder if that's what some of these cruise companies are thinking if they're delaying, saying, oh, no, Carnival, you go first. Norwegian's going to take a couple-week delay. What right? do you think, Seema, what do we know on that front? And by the way, it's not just the cruise lines. They're the most obvious candidate, but like my daycare. I mean, you go down the list, and the liability issue is a big one. Liability is definitely something that they're going to have to think about, especially as they uh, allow for passengers to get on board. That's a really great point that Courtney makes. But I will also say... For those who cruise, they love it. They literally live by it. Families across America who have three children, they want that one vacation, uh, those drink tickets. They, you know, send the kids to the pool. It's For some Americans, it's seen as the way to travel. And so I already know a lot of people who want to get on a cruise in 2021, uh, anecdotally speaking. And in fact, it is starting to show up in bookings for all three cruise operators, Royal Carnival and Norwegian. Interesting. I, I, Seema, we, real quick, I mean, how long can they go, though, before they get that revenue in? These, it, it's got to be existential. Yes, great point. So SunTrust says it's about 12 to 14 months that they have of liquidity uh, to last in this no-sale environment. But I bet you you'll see a lot of these cruise lines go back to the debt and equity market to raise even more cash if they can. Yeah, excellent point. All right, next up is a rare double upgrade in the retail world today, a double upgrade. It's Wells Fargo boosting Gap to overweight from underweight. They more than 
and doubled the price target to $19. And they're saying two major components of the company are underappreciated, both its real estate and personal favorite, the Athleta brand. Uh, the shares are rallying today about 7% on this. They've lost a third of their value since the start of the year, Courtney. And they, they, did they even spin off Old Navy? They canceled that, right? So I think the analyst is yeah, saying basically. Exactly, the, Kel. Yeah, the real estate and Athleta are almost all of the value right now. Exactly. So the Wells Fargo note looks at it and they're trying to figure out how much of all of these parts are really being appreciated and valued by the market, frankly. And a lot of the analysts had to go back to the drawing board with their models when they canceled the old Navy spin out, as you point out. And so Wells Fargo says, look, we think that the San Francisco headquarters and the four distribution centers they own Plus, the Athleta brand is 90% of the enterprise value. And so what they say is, you know what? We're going to upgrade our shares to overweight. We're going to a $19 price target. And they even call their own call controversial. They just think it's being really underappreciated. And another point they make is that if that, because potentially that Old Navy spin out didn't work, and if the founding family and the current board are still looking for spin out opportunities, Athleta might be the answer because it's not really being appreciated by the market, at least by this analysis. That's a great point. By the way, another big call on the street today was UBS upgrading Walmart. We're going to speak with that analyst in the next hour on Power Lunch. But sticking with retail, while most stores have raised to pivot to e-commerce during the pandemic, not TJ Maxx. A new story in the Wall Street Journal today looks at how the coronavirus has changed everything except this place. The CEO of the parent company told analysts in May, quote, strategically, nothing will change. It's not looking to ramp up e-commerce anytime soon, guys. I mean, I, like you yeah. said, you're either a cruiser or you're not. I love TJ Maxx. I don't need them to change anything. But I was how long, just going to say that. How long that. can they keep going like this, Court? I was just going to say that, Kelly, to Seema's point, either you're a TJ Maxx shopper or you're not, right? <laughs> you either love that treasure hunt and you love digging, digging through the racks and finding something really special that you couldn't find online, at least not on the TJ Maxx websites because it's just only 2% of their sales or you're not. And so the people that have been missing it are ready to go back. I have seen some really interesting pictures of socially distanced lines outside many of these off-price <laughs> stores. And those shoppers are ready. And TJ Maxx says, look, it worked before. It's going to work for us afterwards. Dom, Sima, what do you think? So here's what I would say. I would say on the TJ Maxx front, I used to be a Marshalls TJ Maxx person. It got to be a little bit difficult for me after a while. But now, because of e-commerce and the omni-channel approach that many retailers have taken and their inventory management practices, you can find many of those off-price items without having to go into a TJ Maxx or a Marshalls and sifting through everything. If you do like the treasure hunt, like Courtney says, it's great. But I can find online versions of many of those things from retailers that I already know about and the brands that I like without having to go through that whole process. And these days, my time has become increasingly important. Courtney's I, looking so there. skeptical. Quick word, Court, because there's something I, else. It's I... just not the same. The treasure hunt is just not the same <laughs> online, Dom. I hear what you're saying, but that's a targeted search. You go into TJ Maxx because you don't know what you'll find. Exactly. So that's how it's different from e-commerce, I think. I, I, I would say, say that for home goods. Home goods, yes, for right. sure. I, by the way, I also love this model so much. I've been there you know, twice in the past three years. But anyway, uh, before we go, guys, this story I, in this headline I just have to bring to you. Valentino is suing to terminate it's Fifth Avenue lease. Fifth Avenue of Manhattan, and the reason why it's so interesting, it says it's no longer workable as a luxury destination in a post-pandemic New York City should such a day arrive. I mean, first of all, do we think Valentino could get out of the lease based on this? And if so, what the heck does this mean for Fifth Avenue, for all of Manhattan? I mean, for... You know, Seema, I'm going to ask you. Well, you know, Courtney's a retail expert, but just from reading this article, it's interesting how you talk about TJ Maxx really appealing to the American middle class, but then Valentino... Uh, 
speaks to luxury and that international tourism that they really bank on. And right yes. now, travel restrictions are still in place. Chinese are not certainly not coming to New York to shop uh, down Fifth Avenue. So perhaps this is one way Valentino can scale back and cut costs is through their retail footprint. It's going to be fascinating, guys, if they can get out of it based on this. And if so, wouldn't everybody else flee Fifth Avenue, too? I mean, who, who's going to be left? Court, quickly, last word. Yeah, I, I, I just think really quickly, Kelly, this is just one example of many. I think lawyers are going to be super busy because every retailer and every shopping center are going to fight each other for who owes who, whose fault this is, and how many leases can be renegotiated or walked away from altogether. And this is also the bear case on Manhattan commercial real estate. I mean, there's a lot of tentacles, uh, if they're correct here. Thank you all. Appreciate it. I'll see you at Home Goods, Dom. Courtney Reagan, <laughs> Dom Chu, and Seema Modi on Rapid Fire today. Coming up, big crypto investor Mike Novogratz says the changing of the guard at the SEC could mean very good things for Bitcoin. He'll join us, plus the great COVID coin shortage, why the recent pandemic has many businesses and consumers hoarding their coins, and what it means for the economy. Stay with us. Welcome back. We got some breaking news out of Apple's developers event. Let's get back to Josh Lipton. Josh, what's going on? So, Kelly, so Apple's Craig Federighi is walking us through some changes coming to iOS 14, so the company's new mobile operating system. One feature, they say, is they're rethinking car keys. Apple is introducing a new digital version of car keys. This is a new feature that would basically allow you to unlock your car with your iPhone, so no physical key would be required. The new 2021 BMW 5 Series, Apple says, will be the first to support the feature available next month. Um, Apple also making the case that the digital key it's come up with here would be more secure than physical versions. And the feature will actually be available, they're saying, in iOS 13 and iOS 14. So it could be interesting, Kelly, if Apple gets more car makers to sign on, Kelly. Yeah, and also because so many of the car makers are doing this on their own. So they're now trying to get in there kind of as the OS for it. Super interesting. Uh, Josh, thanks very much. We'll see you again soon with more. Josh Lipton covering WWDC for us. Uh, Meanwhile, toilet paper and hand sanitizer aren't the only things that people and businesses have been hoarding during the pandemic. They've been hoarding coins as well. Elon Moy joins me now with the details. Elon? Well, Kelly, this is the problem. Here is my coin jar, and as you can see, it's pretty full. I'm sure if you have one, it's pretty full, too. People are just not going to the store as much as they used to, and even when they do, they're not paying with cash and coin. They're paying with card, and that means that all of this money is not getting back into circulation. At the same time, the U.S. Mint has had to adjust to the coronavirus as well. Last year, it produced 12 billion coins. This spring, it had to slow down production so that employees could social distance, and that impacted the number of coins, too. As a result, the Federal Reserve is now warning of a low coin inventory, and some banks have gotten so worried, they're even turning to their customers for help. What I did was we have some gumball machines, which we only... uh take the money out of about once every six months and I said well we'll go and remove those early and uh, that'll add to the total that they need. Now the Mint has said it's adding weekend shifts to help catch up with production and the Fed says this problem will eventually resolve itself but Kelly if you've got some extra change lying around now might be a good time to bring it in. Back so fascinating. The, all of this out of the Fed uh, testimony on Capitol Hill. That's why we watch. Elon, thanks very, very much, uh, Elon Moy. And now let's bring in Jim Geharity. He is the CEO of Coinstar. Mr. Geharity, it's great to have you here. And man, what a story. So basically what's happened? No one's coming to your kiosks? Well, that's not it at all. Uh, thank you for having me today. But the uh, 
The issue really is with the pandemic, uh, people have stayed in their homes uh, more frequently and uh, grocery trips are down at the height of the pandemic. It was about 50 percent less trips to grocery. And as a result, there's just been uh, less time for folks to go in and do the coin transactions. Trust me, there's plenty of coin out there. It's just not making its place uh, its way to the right place at this point in time. So do you I mean, here's another question is I've been thinking about this all weekend. Who is it that needs coins? You know, who is at risk if they can't get the coinage? We've heard it, you know, about it from banks. But where does this where does the coin need to get to? Well, it needs to get into retail. Retail is, is the primary user of the coin. It also needs to get into the into the banking institutions to supply retail. So that's really where the need is right now. Uh, you know, we're, what we're doing is we're asking consumers to come out and do their coin transactions now in order to get that supply chain filled again. And then we can help to recirculate that. Coinstar does about $2.7 billion worth of coin recirculated each year. And that makes its way back into the system. It supplies the, the banks uh, and the Federal Reserve Bank for the demand that, that's being fulfilled back down to retail. So retail really needs it. You know, one of the things people have been doing because of their concern about the pandemic is trying to not use cash. And I assume that includes kind of touching coins. Probably a different story if I'm bringing something that's been sitting at home and depositing it in your machine. But what would you say to people who are wary about touching coins right now? Yeah, I, look, I think that the, the CDC has been quite clear about this. The highest risk that you have for a transfer of the disease is person to person, close contact, uh, you know, the water particles that are coming from people while sneezing or coughing. That really does it. And, and it's been clear that on surfaces, it really only lasts a very short period of time. People are touching door handles. They're touching money. They're touching everything, really. But the, the, the primary way, according to the CDC, is person-to-person contact. So I think you're fairly safe. And, of course, washing your hands is, is a pretty important thing. And is, is there any kind of goodies you can offer people for getting those coins uh, into, your, into your kiosks right now? Well, I think the, the, the most important part here is fulfilling the supply chain. So asking them to come and do that. And they just don't have to go to Coinstar. They can go to banks in order to recirculate that coin. But we need to get it back into the system in order to help to supply the demand that, that we go through this summer and into the fall. Fascinating. And again, I guys clearly a great business owned by Apollo, founded in 1991. Jim, thanks for joining me. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on today. Jim Geherity is the CEO of Coinstar. Well, ahead, billionaire investor Mike Novogratz will join us. We'll ask if he's still betting against these markets after the recent rally and his new partnership that will offer what he calls white glove service to buy and store Bitcoin. Stay with us. Welcome back. While Wall Street ponders the political implications of SEC Chair Jay Clayton possibly leaving, the Bitcoin industry sees his departure as a positive sign. Galaxy Digital CEO Mike Novogratz saying this could speed up the approval of a cryptocurrency ETF. Joining me now with more is hedge fund legend Mike Novogratz. And it's good to have you here. Welcome. Thanks, Kelly. So explain to me the the line of thought. It, It seems that SEC Chair Clayton isn't as friendly towards cryptocurrencies as another regulator might be. Listen, you know, he spend most of his term, uh, I think, focused on what we call regulation best interest, which comes into effect at the end of this month, pretty uh, apropos time for him to step down. It seemed like he kind of didn't want to deal with the crypto issues specifically and mm-hmm. kind of constantly punted on it. Uh, listen, I think regulation best interest is a good piece of legislation and it, it'll be a great legacy for him. Uh, but us crypto guys have been wanting somebody uh, a little bit more engaged a little bit more active, a little bit more uh, forward-looking. And so hopefully, you know, 
There are plenty of good people out there. Chris Giancarlo, uh, who ran the CFTC, Heath Tarver, who runs it now, Hester Pierce, uh, who's a who's mm-hmm. a uh, uh, an SEC commissioner. And so I think all all three of those would be great picks. But if what, you're listening to, what about if you're those? Listening to President Trump. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. Mr. President, if you're listening, uh, Mike Novogratz would like the following SEC chair. But what about those who are much more skeptical of cryptocurrencies and, and their viability and, you know, whether that you know, Listen, SEC you just, chair should be so open to them? You guys just had a pretty quaint conversation about <laughs> planes. And I was sitting there thinking, for God's sakes, people, this is 2020. Ninety three percent of Chinese financial transactions happened electronically. Digitally. We are moving into a digital era, and we're st- still talking about quarters versus nickels. And so t- today, China actually uh, suggested with Japan, Korea, and Hong Kong to do a regional cryptocurrency that becomes their trade currency. And so we need to get our act on the ball uh, fast, right? The, 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 or U.S. is going to fall way behind. Yeah. And so it's almost impossible for me to think that in some period of time, we don't have stable coins or or crypto versions of the dollar, the digital versions of the dollar that right. really uh, become what we transact but instead Mike, of carrying around pockets full of change. Here's what always confuses me about that line of argument. We have digital dollars. I use them every day with Venmo and all these other things. Why do I need we a still, cryptocurrency? We, we certainly do. So we have Venmo. Uh, you're limited to how much you can you can move around at any, at any one point. Uh, we have Apple Pay. We have plenty. And that that listen, that's growing. There's going to be a, a big battle over payments. Is it going to be a centralized system like Venmo, or will it be a more decentralized system where privacy is easier to to, to orchestrate into the system, like a a digital uh, or a crypto dollar? Mm-hmm. Uh, listen, Facebook is coming fast with Libra. Uh, I think it'll be launched by the end of this year. Uh, they've got 2.3 million customers, and that will be a dollar-based stablecoin. One more question, Mike, and it's on the value of Bitcoin. So, you know, if I told you, hey, I'm going to there's going to be a national pandemic, you know, people can't get access to, to cash, literally, among other things, you think it'd be the perfect environment for Bitcoin to spike. But it didn't. I mean, it's kind of treaded water. It sold off a little when the market was weak. Most people see this as a disappointment. I wonder if Bitcoin shouldn't be stable in value because that was maybe part of the attraction uh, for use more generally. Well, you know, listen, what, I, what does it all say I, I to you? I don't think Bitcoin is going to be used as our payment currency, certainly in the United States, right? The dollar is stable still. Why are people buying Bitcoin now? They're buying it the same reason they're buying gold. Gold's on the highs. Bitcoin has come from, you know, it sold off to 5,000. It's back to almost 10,000 because people worry that the Fed and the Treasury are printing and buying too many dollars, right? We've got this unholy alliance between huge fiscal uh, stimulus mm-hmm. by the Treasury and the, the Fed financing the whole thing. And when you keep putting more and more dollars in the system, the value of the dollar could go down. And so the possibility of a big dollar devaluation uh, has gone, it's higher. It's not a base case, but it's certainly higher. And so people are using Bitcoin as a hedge to that. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and we're seeing that. We're seeing that with adoption slowly but surely. And so it will surprise me if we don't take out 10,000 soon. And after that, you're going to see 14,000 and then 20,000. Well, and we'll see what happens if there is a changing of the guard at the SEC, which is still a, far from a conclusion. Mike, it's great to have you. Thanks for sharing your thoughts today. Thank you. Mike Novogratz is the CEO, chairman and founder of Galaxy Digital. And coming up, the staggering stats of just how much e-commerce has grown over the past few months and who's benefiting the exchanges back in two. 
Welcome back. Many areas of retail have been hit hard, except for e-commerce, which has seen explosive growth. For a closer look at those numbers and some of the winners, let's bring in Frank Holland. Frank. Hey, Kelly, what's going on? You know, 90% of the growth in e-commerce this year is due to the spike in residential deliveries due to the pandemic. So if you view the president declaring COVID-19 as a national emergency, it's kind of a dividing line of the first five months of this outbreak. It really illustrates the shift in packages. Amazon, they made the biggest gains shipping nearly a third of all e-commerce after mid-March compared to just about a fifth in that same period in 2019. Now looking at grocery delivery, that grew 50% year over year, before mid-March, after those sales nearly tripling, as more and more Americans, they just avoided in-store shopping. Food delivery, a business that's been under a lot of scrutiny, on pace to grow 26% before mid-March, after it more than doubled as the majority of restaurants remaining open, well, they turned to pick up only. Now, these are trends that only appear to be continuing, at least in the near term, if you look at the forecast growth of paid Amazon Prime memberships. What Kelly, a, back over to you. Jobs, Frank, do jobs follow the uh, where the growth is? You know, that's a big part of it. When you look at Amazon and Instacart, two of the biggest gainers in this, Instacart with more than 400% growth after the, the national emergency, both of them hired uh, hundreds of thousands of people. For Amazon, it was 175,000. For Instacart, it was 550,000. Wow. Really allowing them to capitalize on demand where some other companies struggled to meet demand and offer uh, appointment times for things like grocery delivery. Frank, thank you, sir. Frank you. Holland. That does it for the exchange today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.